take this opportunity to please everyone give some tzedakah. And if somebody wants to mute themselves and say kapitel mem aleph, we'll all say to Helen together. Goldie, you want to lead us? My mic really doesn't work well on the computer. Oh, okay. Sipa, Rahi, Joni, somebody want to lead us? Mem Aleph? I could do it in Mem Aleph. Okay. Lanatseach, Mizmor, Le David, Ashrei, Maskil, El Dal, the Yom Ra'a, Yamaltehu, Adonai, Adonai, Yishmerehu, Bayechayehu. The Ushar, Ba'aretz, Ba'al Titnehu, Benefesh, Oivav, Adonai, Yisadenu, Al Eresh, Davai, Kol Mishkavo, Hapachta, Vichalyo, Ani Amarti, Adonai, Kaneni, Rafa Nafshi, Ki Hatati Lach, Oivai, the Yomru La, Ra, Li Matai Yamut, Avad Shemo, the Im, Ba, Lerot, Shva, Yedaber, Libo, Yikbats, Aven lo yitze lahuts yedaber. Yahad alai yitlahashu, kol sunai alai yhashu raali. Davar glia el yatsuk bo vasher shahav lo yosif lakum. Gam ish shlomi asher batahti bo ochel lahmi higdil alai akev. Vata adonai haneni vehakimeni vashlama lahem. Bizot yadati ki hafatsa. Be ki lo yaria by vi alai. Vani betumi tamarta be betativeni lefanahal alam. Baruch Adonai Elohe Yisrael maha alam the adha alam. Amen. The amen. Somebody want to read uh, lead us in chaf? Achi, you want to lead us in chaf? Banatech, Ms. Mother David, Yancha, Nibium, Sarah, Isagefra, Shemelehe Akov. Ishlach Ezra Makodesh, Mutsia in Sedeka, Iskar Kam Kosecha Velasra Yidafna Sela, Etain Lachafa Vacha Vacholatsa, Sway Male, Nerana Vishu Seho Shemelahino Nibdal, Imale Nekomashal Secha, Atea Dati, Yashir Nemeshikai, Yeneo Mishme Kotre, Big Vurosiesha Yemina, Elevarechavel of Asusa, and Nachno Shemenel Hainu Naskir, Hema Korov and a follow of Anachno Kamno Venisaidot. Adenoi Haishia Hamelchianenu Viam Kareno. Mr. children, immediately. And a Shlema Faharav Yesef Ben and all others who need a Shlema Kreva. Amen. We're learning Vayishlach Hey, Chelet Tezvav. And this is a Rashi Sikha on a, on a whole parak that I think is really the quintessential flyover zone. Nobody really pays attention to this. It's a whole parak dealing with the progeny, the descendants of Asaf. And um, Rebbe stops on a Rashi. And the Rashi is in Paraglamit Vav. Pasuk Lamed Aleph. Then there is Haira that is um, exquisitely uh, 
relevant to all of us, I think, as every hara is, but this one, maybe we grapple with a little bit more than some others. But first we begin with the Rashi Sikhas. So in Parak Lamed Vav, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, the Torah tells us, um, no, I'm sorry, no, Lamed Vav, Lamed, one second, Lamed Gimel. Vayamaz Bala, Vayimlech Tachav Yevav, Ben Zerach Mibatsra. So, the king, the previous king died, and he was succeeded by a king named Yevav, who was a son of Zerach, from a place called Batsra. So, Echad HaMalachim Asher Malchu Be'eres Edem Lefnei Meloich Melech Lefnei Yisrael. So, in Pasuk Lamed Aleph, we're told that these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over B'nai Yisrael. And if you look at Rashi, Lamed Aleph, Rashi says there were a total of eight of these kings. Yaakov established a corresponding number in whose days Esau's kingdom seized. They are the following. Shol, Ishboshes, David, Shlomo, Rechabam, Aviyah, Asa, and Yeshafa. So this king we're talking about, his name is Yeva. And he's the son of Zerach, and he's from a place called Batra. Valdivri HaKasav Halalu, Perish Rashi. And on these words, Rashi explains, Batra Me'are Mayavhi. That Batra is an, actually an Edomite city. I'm sorry, a Moabite city. Shenemar, like it says in Yemiyahu, Valkiryes Ba'al Batra. And it goes on to say that these were all Moabite cities. But because Moab um, gave a king to Edom, meaning that this king came from Moab to govern over Edom, therefore Asida Lil in Mahem, therefore Moab will be punished together with Edom. And here Rashi cites a passage from Yeshayo, that there will be a slaughter to Hashem and Batra. B'tzarech lahaven, and we have to understand. B'man noigaz ha'yesa shal Batra me'are mayav l'pshat ha'pasuk. Basically, who cares? How is it relevant exactly um, to which uh, sovereignty uh, the city of Batra belonged, that it belonged, that it was a Moabite city, to the pshat of the pasuk? So yesh mefarshim, there are mefarshim that explain. Shabazet tiritz Rashi madu hutzra hakasum mi karaloidiano me ayin ba mi batzra. That through this Rashi is trying to explain to begin with why do we need even need to know where this king came from? Why shazehu kdei lahidia shasida batzra lil kaisim mahe. But it's only to tell us that in the future, at the end of time. Batra will be smitten together with Edom. Because Batra provided a king for Edom. And therefore, even though it's a Moabite city, it will be smitten at the same time. But the Rebbe says, but The Rebbe says it would seem that this explanation is not understood and it's not enough. 
because on this, based on this explanation, we have two questions. Aleph, how gufia kashya? This just raises a question. The Mefarshim are saying that the reason this is included is to tell us that at the end of days they will also be punished together with Eden. But but this just begs a question. <laughs> Again, who cares? How is it relevant here that in the end of days they will also be smitten? Especially because in this Perak, here in this part of, of Torah, we're not talking about the end of time when, when Edom will be smitten. We're talking about the descendants of Esau. So how is this Negea Bechlal? And Beis Be'ikar, and mainly, Bechol Echad B'malchi Edom HaMenuyim, Levad Me'echad, Metzayin HaKosav Ezmokim Meitzo'oi. The main thing is that if you look through these Pesukim, in each one of the kings of Edom, except for one, the Pasuk actually tells us their city of origin. And yet Rashi is silent. Rashi never comments on all the other Pesukim where it tells us where this king is from or where this king is located. Even more so, the Melech Ha'achrayim, when it lists the last Edomite king, Ma'arich HaKasov, the, 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 the Pasuk, in elongated fashion, Adds, not only does it say where this king lived, that it was in the city of Pau, but it also adds, that his wife's name was Mahatabel, that she was Bas Mitrad, and additional details that she was the, city, the, the daughter of Mitrad, who was the daughter of somebody known as Mezahav. The Ain Rashi Mivar Nidrash And Rashi is silent. He doesn't comment on what seems to be completely extraneous information. Why do we need so many um, uh, markers as to who this king is? Why do we need so many ways of identifying who this king is? Rashi only is Mifarish Mahu Mezahov. Rashi's comment is on the name Mezahav, that apparently the family was so, so rich that the name comes from his asking, what is gold? And in other words, gold is nothing for me because I'm so rich, <laughs> gold doesn't impress me. Umizem Mufan. So from the fact that Rashi is silent on every other instance in this whole parak where it tells us about the city of origin or the city of location, but, but here he feels compelled to tell us something about the city Batzra. So from his global silence, it's understood that if you're learning Al-Pipshat, there really is no question. Because this is normal, that the Pasuk adds a little bit of detail, gives us some um, additional factors by which we can identify the king that we're talking about. The Imkain, Madua Hisifrashi, Perishabir, Dafka al Mibatsra. And so if in the main Rashi doesn't comment at all, then why does he feel compelled to comment in this case about the city Batsra? Base. The Yuvan, and we will understand this, Bahakdim Habir, Bipasuk, Shaboy, Nemra Hapsura, Aidas Gadlus, Malchus Eden Visra. 
we will preface first with understanding the pasuk that is Rivka comes to ask why it is that she feels this very, very um, anomalous situation where when she passes a place of terror study, she feels um, a, a, a quickening and a, and a, um, a movement uh, in utero. But when she also, when she passes a place of Abba Zara, she feels the same thing. And this was very disquieting. It made her very nervous. So she went to ask and she got a prophecy. And Hashem told her, You have two nations within you and two um, great nations will separate from within you. And they will always seesaw in terms of their power. One will be greater, one will go down. But the younger one will be served by the older one. The Rav Yahweh Sayer, the older one will always serve the young one. Visham, and over there, on the words that the power will always be changing hands there. Herish Rashi, they will never achieve equilibrium. They will never be equal in their greatness. There will always be a seesaw. When this one goes higher, this one will fall. But on the end of the Pasuk, where it says, and the older one will serve the younger one, Rashi does not explain anything. So it's not understood. If it's always going to be the seesaw effect, when this one goes higher, this one will fall. So how does that jibe? How can that be reconciled with the end of the Pasuk that says, in a global fashion, it doesn't qualify. It says always the older one will serve the younger one. From this, it's understood. That this will always be the case. Always. And it doesn't, um, it's not contingent on, on any other factors. So how does it work? If in one part of the Pasuk we're told that when one goes up, one will go down, how is it possible that at the end of the Pasuk we're told that always and forever the older one will serve the younger one? And in the Medrash we find, Isal it's written concerning this, Zacha, if the younger one merits, Ya'avoid, he will be served by the elder. The Imlav, and if he does not merit, Ye'avad, he will have to serve the older one. Abel Rashi, lo'yehebi Medrash But Rashi doesn't put down this Medrash. So in other words, it seems that in one part of the Pasuk, Rashi is saying there's always going to be this struggle factor. Whereas in the second part of the Pasuk, Rashi doesn't seem to embrace this. And he's saying that, this, that while there's going to be a dynamic factor to their relationship, there's always, go there's always going to be a static factor to the relationship. And that is that the older one will serve the younger one irregardless of what else is happening. So the Rebbe says explanation is, Rashi says on the words, 
there are two nations in your in your stomach in your womb. Here is Rashi Geim Ksiv, that this is talking about two proud ones that will emerge from you. Elu Antoninus Berebi. This is referring to the Roman Antoninus who always had a relationship with Rebbe and and converted to Judaism. Um, so this is referring, so Goyim, the expression Goyim is referring to Goyim, the proud ones. And regarding the two great nations, that whenever you talk, of, you use the term Um for nation, it means sovereignty. So what does this mean? The have explains, this is not just a literary device, an alliteration, when it says, when it says, no. But in these two terms, the Pasuk is referring to two completely different categories. When it says, when it says there are two nations within your stomach, within your womb, this is talking about individual people, Yaakov and Esav and their descendants. But when it says the term, there it's talking about Yaakov and Esau as the nations that will emerge from them. And so there's two different dynamics going on here. And so once we understand the distinction between Goyim and Umim, it's understood that when the Pasuk goes on to say, these two terms, they parallel the two terms, the two distinctive terms used earlier. When it talks about the seesaw effect, that one will rise, and that will mean that the other one will go lower. When the one that goes lower rises, the other one has to ipso facto go lower. That's talking about them as nations. And in that respect, So when you're talking about them as nations, there will, again, always be the seesaw effect. One will rise, one will fall. And then the opposite. The one that fell will rise, and the one that that rose will fall. Masha Enkin, but in contradistinction, when it says Virav that the older one will always serve the younger one, Midaber Ishim Pratim. This is talking about Yaakov and Esav and their descendants as thriving individuals. And in this respect, the older one will always serve the younger one, meaning the descendants of Asa will always serve the descendants of Yaakov. And we find in like fashion, we find this reflected in the, in the brachas that Yitzchak gave to Yaakov. He blessed him. That you are going to be a Lord over your brother. And there's no qualification. 
there's no, um, it's not, there are no conditions set. There are no ramification, uh, I'm sorry, parameters set. For instance, it doesn't say that this will only be the case at certain times. It, no, on the, on, on, on the contrary, it will always be the case that the older one will serve the younger one. So much so that it is for this precise reason, Omar Yitzchak said to Esav when Esav came crying and said, please give me a blessing also. Have you only one blessing? Yitzchak said to his son, What is the efficacy of me giving you a blessing? Everything that you acquire, everything that you buy will be his because he's going to be a Lord over you. And whatever a servant has belongs to his master. So, so of what efficacy will my blessing be to you? The only qualification is that when you will have reason to complain about Yaakov, you will be grieved and, and Rashi explains, when B'nai Yisrael will not act the way B'nai Yisrael are supposed to, and they will trespass on the, on the commandments of the Torah, then you will be able to cast off his yoke from upon your nape. This means, that even when you have what to complain about and you are aggrieved, the brachas will still never belong to you. Because even when you can bring a complaint against Yaakov that he's not acting properly, you're still his servant. You see, the Rebbe underscores the word oil. You'll be able to cast off the yoke, but you will still be subservient to him. You're not going to be a free person. Gimel. Avol al So now that we understand the original Pasuk that <clears throat> describes the relationship between Yaakov and Esav from the prophecy that their mother got when she was pregnant, now the Rebbe says, based on this, there is something difficult that we have to address. And that is in Hasuk Lamed Aleph, which is Yisrael. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Yisrael. So the Rebbe says, so it would seem that it's explaining how this prophecy to Rivka came to fruition. This seesaw effect that one and the other will always be in a struggle. When this one rises, this one falls. The Edomites kings, the descendants of Esau, they were sovereign before there was any king over Israel. But when there was a king for Israel, Azai then 
the sovereignty of Esav was completely, um, completely became moot, dissolved, abnegated. So once we understood, like they have explained to us in Se'ev Beis, that the second part of the clause, that the older one will serve the younger one, and that is underscored in the brach of Yitzchak to Esav, to, to Yaakov, and then he underscores this when he speaks to Esav, that that Yaakov is going, to, is, to lord, is going to lord over his brother, and that this is something that will be true at all times. Even when you have cause to be grieved and you will cast off the oath. Then how is it possible that there should be kings in the same time that B'nai Yisrael had kings. In the same way. And it would seemingly seem that it doesn't reflect this idea that Yaakov will lord over his brother. And as we said above, that, that clause, that it will be when you will be grieved that Yitzchak put into his bracha to Esav will only cause that you'll be able to cast off your yoke. You'll only be able to stop serving. What's what's it called? Um, Spartica, like when 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 the um, servant re- revolts. But this shouldn't allow for Esav to lord and certainly not to be a king. Bahabir Bazes, that explains, so this explains what's going on here in our parak. Haparsha Atzma Miyasheves Hadavar. The Psukim itself in this parak reconciled this question. Because it delineates for each one of the Edomite kings that you think that they're the descendants of Esau, that actually they all hail from a different place. They all hail from a different region. They don't actually come from Edom. That yes, they were kings over Edom, but not from the seed of Esau. But they were from different regions, and therefore they hail from different nations. And so therefore, we, we reconcile the question of how could Edom Bechlal have kings when he's not supposed to be a Gavir, and certainly not a Melech. Dalit. But now this brings us to the stira. This brings us to the um, the, the the problem. The uh, help me here. Um, contradiction. The contradiction. Thank you. ben zarach mi Regarding yayva ben zarach that came from batra. Because if you look at the psukim, the lineage of Esav is delineated. And if you look, 
um, at the pasuk before the pasuk that we're looking at. No, sorry, not the pasuk before, but we look at the beginning of the kings, we find his father's name. Zerach and Pasuk Yudzayim. So that's a problem. Zerach Hayame Alufei Reish Mishpachas Bnei Esav. It's also mentioned in Pasuk Yudgimel. Now I see in the footnote and Tezvav and Yudzayim. So how how can this be? And second, and there are a couple of places in the Nevi'im that Batra is mentioned regarding the land of Edom. And so it seems that Batra is a city in the land of Edom and that Yeva is a descendant of Zarach and Zarach is clearly a descendant of Esau. Therefore, Rashi has to depart from what he's doing in the rest of this parak, where he is silent regarding the cities of origin or the regions of origin, and he feels compelled to reconcile this, and to tell us, to tell us very clearly in full-throated fashion that Batra is not a city that belongs to Edain, but rather to Mayav. And not, to, not only does he tell us this, and he brings a definitive proof, and he brings this proof from um, Yirmiyahu, that is a pasuk that says, and then the Rebbe says, and all the other cities that are mentioned there, in that parak of Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, I'm sorry, Memches, Hey Me'eretz Mayav, Okesiyim HaKasuf Shram, and like the end of the Pasuk says there, Va'alkol Are Eretz Mayav. So Rashi wants to disabuse us of the idea that Batra is an Edomite city, and that this king that we're talking about here, Yevav, is actually an Edomite king. So this proves that Yevav ben Zarach is not from the seed of Esav. He comes from a different place, and therefore he comes from a different family, he comes from a different nation. So why is it that in the Nevi'im we find in a few places that this place, this geographic location, Batra, is mentioned, um, you know, together with Edom. Rashi addresses this and explains this later in his commentary. And he says, and because this city kind of provided a king for Edom, therefore it was smitten together with Edom. And therefore, in the places where it speaks about 
the punishment that Hashem will bring upon Edom in the future, so again, Rashi wants to categorically um, undo the, the uncouple Yevav ben Zarach mi Batra from the seed of Asaf. And he says he's not from that family and he's not from that region. He comes from Mayav and therefore he comes from a different people. And the fact that Batra is found mentioned together with, with Edaim in the Nevi'im, this is because they will be punished at the end of time, but for no other reason. Not because it is an Edomite uh, space. Hey, I'll pee on now. So based on all of the above, Shekavanas Rashi Bidbar Mida Asida the Rebbe says that based on the above, that Rashi's intention with his words, when he says, because Batra provided a king for Edom, therefore Batra will be smitten together with him. Rashi's not trying to show the connection between Batra and Edom, but rather wants to explain why Batra is mentioned in close proximity to Edom in a number of places in Avim, even though it's a Moabite region. Why? Because that's, that space, Batra is going to be smitten together with Edom at the end of times. And the Rebbe says through this, Yesh Litarets Oid Diuk Beperish Rashi once we understand this, we can also explain another specificity, another nuance in the Rashi that we have before us. So look what the Rebbe is doing. He's taking a parak nobody pays any attention to, and a pasuk that nobody would ever know. And now he's going to analyze a proof text in this Rashi, and where the v'goymer, the etc., is found. When Rashi wants to prove that Batra is a city that belongs to Mayav and not to Edoim, Hevi Rashi is Lashon Apostles. Rashi brings down the Pasuk, Al Kiryas Baal Batra, the Pasuk from Yirmiyahu, which, which ends with that these cities were all Moabite cities. And so Rashi brings Vigoymer, etc. But in his second proof text, where he wants to prove that the only reason that Batra is mentioned in a number of places in confluence with Edom is because they're also going to be punished when Edom is punished. So Rashi brings down a passage from Yeshayahu. But he cites Hetik Rak, he cites only Kizebak Lashem Batra, that there will be a slaughter in Batra, but he does not say etc. And it would seem Ifcha Mistabra. Logically, it should have been the opposite. Why? Because Litzairach Harayashem Batra me are he. Because to prove that Batra is a Moabite city, it's enough for him to bring down the words from Yemiyo, Valkyrie is Batra Levad, and that would be enough. 
Why? Because you understand from the, con- from the context that just like the place Kyrgyz is a Moabite city, so is Batra. The Hemshech HaPasuk, and the end of the Pasuk, I'll call Ari Eretz Mayav, and all the cities of Eretz Mayav, Sheramaz Rashi by Safaz Vigoymer, that Rashi alludes to by adding Vigoymer, etc., Hurakai Safa Beraya. It's just additional, it's gravy, but it's not necessary. So, why does Rashi feel compelled to put it there? Especially Masha Enkim, because in contradistinction, Haraya Shabatra Sida Lilkaisi Mahem, the proof that this, the place called Batra will in the time to come be smitten together with Edom, Yacharim Edom, he loy mehatebas, he zevach lahashem bebatra. That can't be definitively proven from the words will be a sacrifice to Hashem in Batra. Because there doesn't seem to be anything that mentions or even alludes to Edom. The illusion is actually found in the second part of that Pasuk. The etc. of that Pasuk, where it says, and there will be a huge slaughter in, in the land of Edom. And in this citation, Rashi doesn't add Vagaymer, where it would seem so much more necessary. So the Rebbe says, So we might say that explanation is as follows. When you look at the the continuum of this verse, there'll be a sacrifice to God in Batra, and there'll be a great slaughter in the land of Edom. It would seem that the Pasuk actually contradicts and contravenes what Rashi is trying to say here. That Batra is a city uh, that belongs to Mayav, but is only mentioned here because in the future she will the city will be smitten together with Edom. Why does this seem to contradict Rashi's thesis? Because when you speak, it's not logical to first put the ancillary, the less important first, and then to go to the main subject, which is what it seems like in this puzzle. First, it says that Batsra, there'll be a Zevach Hashem in Batsra. And then it says it's going to be a great slaughter in, in, um, in Eretz Edain. But isn't it the opposite? Rashi's teaching us that the fact that Batsra will be punished is because Edain will be punished. And this is just a, an outgrowth. It's just a detail. It's a secondary thing. So it would seem that it contradicts Rashi's whole thesis. So the Rebbe says, Amnam, however, to, to explain this, even if it's a little difficult, 
and we're forced to explain it this way, Aliba de Rashi, that this is what Rashi is thinking. Shahavov, the Tevach Godol, that the Vav that comes before the word Tevach Godol, Enei Vav Hamaisif, is not a Vav that comes to say, and in addition, because if it comes to say, and additionally, then we have the question. How can you put the main thing before the secondary, after the secondary thing? How can you put the secondary thing before the main thing in the puzzle? How can you say, um, I'm ordering flowers before you talk about the fact that you're making a wedding? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So if it's a vav hamaisif, then the continuum of the puzzle doesn't reflect what Rashi is trying to teach us here. But it's not a vav hamaisif, el vav hamafsik. But it's a vav that is being used to divide the two clauses of the puzzle. But since al pipshat, this is difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult to see how the way this Pasuk is constructed supports what Rashi is trying to teach us. So even though it would seem logical that Rashi would bring it and would say the would hint to it, he doesn't because the order of the Pasuk is out of kilter with his thesis. Now the question is, if can I ask you something that's yeah, uh, sure. the thing before? Uh, sorry, um, no, don't be sorry. I, no, because the question should come at the end, but I might have. Okay, so I don't understand if it's a seesaw effect. Why would it be a problem that the um, um, the bnei Asa of Edom would have kings before bnei Israel? A seesaw is a seesaw. Because no, because it's the second part of the puzzle. I understand. So we said that. Rav so there might be moments, but there are moments that he's, in essence, he's still an Evid. That's what I understood. But there are, but it manifests what we see on the outside externally is as if Asav is the king or Asav is ruling. But he's always going to be an Evid. So this whole thing of having kings before can also just be a certain manifestation, an external thing, but really, in essence, the Jew is the king. But Either we're saying sense. one thing or we're saying another thing. Um, I, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, the Rebbe is saying, where does it come to Esav to ever be a Gavir, much less a Melech, when the Jews don't have a king yet? When the Jews have kings, Mela, there'll be a seesaw effect between the Malchies, because the Rebbe has distinguished between the Malchies and the and the the personalities themselves. Right. So when there's going to be Malchies, we understand a seesaw effect. But before that, where does it come to Asa of the Chlal, any connection to to lording, to, to, to sovereignty? It doesn't really answer my question, but I hear what you're saying, and thank I you. I think it does because the Rebbe is saying that's Rashi's what why why Rashi 
doesn't say anything okay. about all the psukim that we have here because they're not really Edomite kings. I understand so, the flow of the Rashi. My question still remains about the seesaw effect. Either it's Taka's seesaw effect. Maybe I'm just remembering this, learning this as a child and I always taught it. And I'm, I'm still in an immature brain. Uh, my, my brain is working like immaturely. In other words, I'm thinking it's really just, it's like a real seesaw. In other words, it doesn't oh, matter it what's is, going it on. Is a, it is a real seesaw once they both have kinks. Why once they both have, have kinks, that means that means shola melech. Like when does that happen? Because, because yes, I just want to because the rebbe is rebbe is dividing that. I think maybe Rachi this kvetch rebbe is dividing the pasuk and he's saying there's two different things going on here. There's the kingdoms that will be in a seesaw effect. But that doesn't kick in yet. So before there are kingdoms, there's just personalities. So where does it come to this personality that is inherently subjugated to spawn kings? Okay, maybe I, I'm remembering Murakhan Salangiyar's classes of Mlochim, right? Um, when they ask for a king and it wasn't even a positive thing and the whole thing of kingdom is that. So this is a different subject, I get it. But in my mind, Am Yisrael became an Am. Am is before king and has nothing to do with the king. Where Am Yisrael today, we don't have a king. There's a kingdom, like you, you know. You're just underscoring the question. How? I'm saying that there was a kingdom even before and a kingdom even after. Does a king make it a kingdom? Yes, the idea of sovereignty. So we're not talking about Am Yisrael now with Ayin. We're talking about Um, and Um is about sovereignty. And before we have sovereignty, we come to say that they should have so much sovereignty when they're supposed to be. The on the whole idea of sovereignty, which never entered my, because like, who, when do we ever talk about it? I mean, that's so, why like, we're learning. That's that. This okay, is the whole thing. You. The whole project okay. is to learn sikhs that we would never learn otherwise. Okay. Thank you very much. I, I mean, I shouldn't say that's the whole thing, but I, I think that's what is jumping out at us. We have done together so many sikhs that we would probably open up and say, no, nah, nah, not this one, not this one, not this one. <laughs> um, that's the only way that you really, really learn. Yeah. So we're expanding horizons. Okay. Uh, okay, so vav ala inyan hanal. So on on what we said above, shalafi Rashi v'rav yavoit sarin nemal kolas manim that the older one will serve the younger one is something that is static. It applies at all times. Efshar lahakshes me'al amor b'tchilas aparsha. Now we have to ask about something at the beginning of the parsha. Misupar sham. We're told at the beginning of the parsha because of in the pasuk itself. Yaakov sent Malachim to Esav, and he, am I the only one that hears the, the tapes in my head? Yaakov sent those songs. That, <laughs> uh, and he, 
and and he and he commanded them. This is what you should say to my master Esau. This is what your servant Yaakov said. To say to my master, to find favor in your eyes. And on top of this, it's we read in the beginning of the parsha that Yaakov sent a massive present Esau. And he bowed to him seven times. And he called him my master many times. And he referred to himself as Avdecha, your servant. What kind of behavior is this? Isn't it supposed to be that Esau is supposed to bow down to him? That Esau is supposed to send him messages and presents and call him Lord? So, so on, on the pshat level, there's not a question. Because we're going to say kal v'choymer, how much more so? Im mitam shema nislach lachdi v'chait. If Yaakov was afraid that he had sullied himself, that he had dirtied himself with sin, and therefore his yari Yaakov shema loy tiskayim haf tocha mefuresh shal kadosh baruch hu elo v'ata amarta hitiv hitiv imo. If Yaakov was anxious because he was afraid that maybe he did a, a hate, and therefore he would not merit the promise that Hashem personally gave him, that I said that I will make it good for you, Allah has come and become how much more so that he was worried, that he was afraid. How much more so he was afraid that maybe the prophecy that did not come directly from Hashem, but came to his mother, that the older one will serve the younger one, won't come to fruition. So therefore, he had to take steps to neutralize Esau's anchor, because he was afraid maybe, maybe he wasn't roi to the nevuah that his mother got. But it still doesn't compute. Once his father's bracha to him, that you will lord over your brother, and it's not tied to any conditions. Even the second clause that Yitzchak later gave to Esau, that when Bnei Yisrael will trespass on the Torah and you will be aggrieved, you'll be able to cast off the yoke. How did Yaakov engage in actions that are the polar opposite of the prophecy that his mother got, the blessing that his father gave him? That he actually called Esav my Lord and he referred to himself as your servant? And we find in the Medrash, Yaakov nenashalkach. We, we actually find that Yaakov was punished for this. He was punished. But still in all, as has been explained a number of times, because each one of the Abbas was an absolute chariot to the celestial desire, there was nothing that, there, that they could do that was different from what Hashem wanted. Call him mayhem all of their lives, all their days. Move on, it's understood. That even as we say that Yaakov was punished, 
But that does not say that he sinned because there is no possibility for sin on the part of the Abbas. It can't be anything evil. It can't be a sin. And the fact that some of the things they, de- they did appear to be chatayim, it's not, God forbid, your pedestrian sin. And like we could see in this Indian that we're talking about. Although Yaakov was punished because of this behavior, in the way he behaved, and how he behaved vis-a-vis Esau, like the Chazal teach us, still in all, we learn, we actually learn a lesson that in this world, sometimes you have to flatter Rishayim to attain peace. Sometimes it's necessary. So obviously, what Yaakov did was not a hate in the in you know in the in the conventional term, because we even learned that we're supposed to behave like this. Now the Rebbe is going to go into the Hasidus and the uh, lesson to us. Mivor b'chasidus, it's explained in chasidus, asher b'shor shay esav nala miyakov, that in their source, esav was higher than yakov. V'lachain hayahu ha'bachar b'leida, and therefore he came out first. In other words, his, um, his physical, being the older one, mirrored a spiritual reality that he came from a higher source. And through Yaakov refining an aspect of Esav, so there is illuminated in Yaakov a higher, more exalted light that comes from the Sharish of Esav. Because Esav Sharish is higher than Yaakov Sharish. And through this is explained, So lefanov can mean before him, or now we can say kind of above him. And he said, This is what you should say to my master. This is what Yaakov, your servant, said. Meaning, alluding to the spiritual reality in which Esav is a lord over him because his antecedent, because his source is higher. And in like fashion, we should understand the gift that Yaakov sent to Esav. Yaakov's intention with this was primarily to send it to send it to the spiritual source of Esav, which is higher than Yaakov's source. But the Medrash, after the Medrash explains that in doing so, Yaakov lowered himself before Esav and he was therefore punished. We have to say, that this explanation that we're giving, that Yaakov sent 
presence to Esav, that it has to be Esav Shalamata, that he didn't just send these presents to the source of Esav, which is higher than him, but that he actually sent it to his brother Esav Lamata, as he appears here as a physical person. And this has to be understood. Move on, Gam and we have to understand why Yaakov did this. In other words, on an abstruse level, you could say he sent it to the Shirish of Asaph. But, but we have to also understand that he actually sent it to Asaph, the physical person. And what does this mean? So this is where we get with something that I think. Uh, so so Hani's asking, how does Yaakov do something? He's a Merkaba. How does he do something for which he is punished? So I think over and over we find this, that Maisha is punished for things that he did, but, but he had to do it. He had to do it in order to protect B'nai Yisrael. In other words, Aaron is punished for something he does, but he did it only to protect B'nai Yisrael. In other words, we, we have this constantly, this motif where a big tzaddik is seen as doing something that was wrong, but like the Rebbe explains here, but it's not a chet chas v'sholem on the conventional level. So he's a Merkava. But two minutes ago, we just asked the exact question and we said that because he's a Merkava, then obviously, I'm saying, obviously I understand that it's not going to be a simple chet like any other person, but if we just said that there wouldn't be anything that would even on a simple level come in contradiction to what Hashem would want, it just seems like Right here, we're, a paragraph later, we're saying the opposite. No, so the Rebbe is going to explain now what is this avaita that Yaakov was engaged in, even on the physical level, in sending a present to Esav. So in other words, because the Medrash told us he was punished, so we have to be attentive to the fact that he did this on a physical level, not just to the Shayrish of Esav. So now the Rebbe says, so what was he doing? But this is not going to be the only place where we find Al-Pichasidus, that the person was doing what had to be done, and still it shows up as a debit on their card. But doesn't it, don't we only stick, don't we only refer to the Avais as the Markava? No. No? Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> what's the question? Like specifically, they would not do anything that would go out of alignment with what Hashem wanted directly. Different, so, different than Maisha or Aaron, like you mentioned. But Maybe I think, so I think where we could draw... To Sorry, what? Hashem wanted us to go to Galos so that we can come to Mashiach on a different level. No, but at least the same. Hashem wanted Chetatat in order for us to rebuild everything. You know, this is all what Hashem wanted. As hard as it is for us to deal with it. If I'm understanding, well, Elisa's question is, we can't compare it to any other such sagas in the Torah because it's only about the Avais that were said that they're Merkavas and they cannot, they cannot diverge from what the Abishter wants. But I think, Elisa, what we can compare is that there are times where there's a punishment and still it's the right thing to do. It's not a hate. That's how we could compare it to what happened with Maishim and Aaron and others. 
that right. al Chasidus, it's not a chate. I, they, they uh, incurred some kind of uh, consequence. But that's part of what Hashem wants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what it means, Merkava, here. Even though a Merkava is totally subservient to its writer, maybe it's teaching, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud, maybe it's teaching us here something that the others, sometimes the horse veers. Now, a horse doesn't have um, free choice, but the others may have understood the intent or known the intent or saw it that it was worth it to veer a little bit to accomplish the Abish's will, even though it cost them. And that's what made them a Markova, that they're willing to pay a price to veer, like we see Marsha Bain hitting the rock. That's truly a Merkava. You're willing to pay the price to do what Abish wants, even though it costs you. And that's total self-nullification. I don't know, I'm just throwing that out. As you're saying, talking, I'm just thinking about it. It just seems like a strange thing to put in the whole idea of punishment. You know, you it feels like we're trying to say two things at once and it doesn't it doesn't really jive to say like you wouldn't whip your wagon because it followed the direction that you put it and you ended up in a ditch. If you took the wagon a certain way and then it got you into a ditch, you'd say, well, it's just a wagon. It follows whatever I want. And if we want to say that the others are Merkava, even if we want to say they followed exactly what Hashem wanted, even at the cost of whatever it may be, so where does punishment fit in with this as? Uh, you know, I, I, when, you, when you read the whole story of Avram and Yitzchak, it was glorious, even though they had challenges. When you read Yaakov, Yaakov paid such a high price beyond reason that we can't live. I don't know. I could, you, how can you live through even one incident, what he went through, let alone everything he went through? And he was Bichir HaAves. It must be that what we call punishment here is not punishment for negative behavior. It must be consequences. You pay a price. Like the Rebbe paid a price that Varleya had to go. What would he want to do? He wanted to spread chassidus. But for whatever reason, there's a gashmistic price that needs to be paid. I'm not sure punishment, the way we think of it in English, is the right word here. It's consequence. And the consequence was big for him. I don't know. This is the way I see it, because punishment talk, it doesn't fit. But I, but I think maybe there's something more simple. The Medrash talks about punishment. And we're talking on, on, on the level of Hasidus, where we're understanding that there's no hate and there's no, and there's no, uh, there's no place for, for using the term punishment. I think that... So, so why so much suffering? Oh, oh, so you're, that's what you're saying. You're saying it's not I'm punishment. Saying in this partic- use, in, yes. Yeah, in this okay. particular, like Chani saying, the Rebbe says the Medrash says that he did something for which he was punished, which means that we have to now understand what was he doing on the physical level? Because Rebbe explains that he was sending the Deir and he was sending the big present to, to the Sherish of Esau. But the Rebbe says, but one minute, we also have to explain Al-Pi Hasidus, what was he doing in a very physical sense? Because we know he did something in the physical sense. How do we know it? Because the Medrash tells us that what he did, he got punished for. But but I still think we need to keep them separate. See what I'm saying, Khani? Like Hasidus is not saying he's punished. The Medrash is saying, Al-Pi Pshat, he was punished. 
So the Rebbe explains, that when you want to um, overcome evil, you want to be victorious over evil, and you want to refine evil, there are, generally speaking, two different modalities. The first way is simply to reveal light, to flood the area with light. The refiner, vis-a-vis the one who's being refined, the, the, the refiner floods or gadol v'nala shel kedushan, an exalted and a holy light, onto the one who's being refined. And through the fact that this light illuminates so strongly, so the evil and the darkness are, are cast away, and this allows for the extrication and the elevation of all of the sparks of holiness that are found in that area. That's Eifen Aleph. That's the first modality. Eifen Habez. The second modality is Bederich Hislapshos, is when the refiner vests themselves in the garments, quote unquote, of the one that is being refined. This means Hamivarer, the refiner, Yoyred Mata, goes down, to the place that has to be refined. not only goes down a level, he even clothes himself in the clothing, as it were, in the construct of the one that needs refining. And through this type of engagement, he transforms the evil to good. And each one of these two modalities has a, um, has a strength and has an advantage over the other one. When you're talking about the one who is doing the refining, then there's a very distinct advantage in the first modality. Shahabirur, because the refinement, it does not include descent to the level of the one that needs to be refined. Because it's done in such a way, because in that first modality, the refiner is standing at a distance and separated from the person or the thing that has to be refined. He doesn't, metaphorically speaking, get dirty, down and dirty, and up close and personal. But in contradistinction, in the second modality, we have uh, uh, what the Tanya tells us, that when, when wrestled with something or somebody that is disgusting, you become contaminated. In the second modality, the one who is doing the refining has to lower himself to a lower level vis-a-vis where he was before. And it could even cause him 
a deficit, a spiritual deficit. But when you're talking from the perspective of the one who is being refined, it's the opposite. In the first modality, because the refinement is coming only through the agency of a revealed light that is being shown, but the effect is not a transformation that's taking place on the inner level. It's not It's almost like the misbara, the one that has to be refined, is being disabled, is being neutralized. Because this great light is, is shining, is being superimposed upon him. But he's not changing from the inside out. So it's a difference between going to Weight Watchers and you get so inspired, the person is so good at what they do and you come home and you're like, these lips, you see these lips? Never, no white flour, no sugar will ever pass this, these lips ever again. But how long does that last? It's only when something changes from the inside out, finally, if it ever happens in one lifetime, that, that you can see a consistent change. So mitzad, the mevarer, the refiner, the first modality is, is, is a better modality because it doesn't necessitate going down and getting dirty and being compromised in any way. But mitzad, the nizbarer, but from the perspective of that which has to be refined, the second modality is much more efficacious because it actually allows for the transformation from within Hare Habir, who, so the, in the first modality, Hare Habir, who beder dechio bitl. What happens in the first modality is that the, the refinement happens through pushing away and nullifying the bad. Basically, the person in the face of the great light that's being shown at them, they have to close their eyes, they have to move back. You hear this amazing. Um, presentation, and you're like, yeah, you're so right. I just, I, I, I just have to change everything about me. That's it. But in the second modality, where the refiner engages by being vested in the one that needs to be refined. The refiner vests him herself in the situation, in the modality, in the construct of that which needs to be refined. This has an effect on the one that needs to be refined itself, that he, in his existence, you're not neutralizing it. You're not pushing it away. But the person, Vasher Husham, will stop opposing and obfuscating holiness, but will himself become a conduit for holiness. But of course, there is a distinct um, risk. There's a risk factor because when you get down and dirty, you could, you could get dirty too. It's really hard to engage on this level and come out 
un, unaffected. But the Rebbe says, Tachlis hakavona bavoydis hatayr v'amitzvahs harehi hatayr nitna la'aslish sholom ba'elam. But if you want to talk about what's the ultimate goal, so we're taught, and the Rambam said, says this in Hilchas Hanukkah, that the Torah was given to bring peace to the world. And what is the real content of peace? What does it mean? That what opposed you transforms and actually makes peace with you. In other words, Sholem is not that your enemy cowers in your presence and therefore does not present uh, a threat. Real Sholem is when your enemy is transformed and no longer opposes you. And the same thing is true in making peace in the world. What is the Oilam? Oilam is Miloshan Helen, to obscure, to shroud godliness. And the whole point is that we have to make peace in the world, which means that the world that was created as a veil, as a mask, as a facade, as a veneer that, that obscures Elikos should be transformed to something that showcases Elikos. Just like it says about the Torah that it traveled and it came down and it had to be vested in the tree of good and bad. Because only in that way of the Torah, quote unquote, coming down, investing itself in this world, is it possible to refine the good from the bad. And sometimes in this descent, it's like it says in Yeshayahu, all of my garments became soiled. Sometimes there, there, there is a soiling effect. The word egaalti means I was soiled, I was dirtied, I was sullied. But the Rebbe says, but the panemius Indian of Ega Alti is Lashen Geula. Birer HaKlipa, refining the Klipa. Kamashinemar, like it says, Mizeba Me'edain, Mibatra Goimer, that at the end, from Edain is going to come the Geula. Nidrash Indian de Ega Alti Lashen Lichloch, Kabyachel, Yeridas Hashchina El Mokem HaKlipas. In order for this to happen, there has to be this inner of ega alti, which is a term of becoming dirty, soiled, kav yachal, of course, because we're talking about Hashem, the, the, the descent of the Shechina into a place of klipas. And so it is with tzaddikim, who are likened onto their creator. They sometimes have to go down, like Yaakov had to do in this case with Esau, and vest themselves in the vestments and in the constructs of that which has to be refined. To answer Chani's question, 
And sometimes this is lapsus, does call for some type of rectification, which the Medrash um, talks about in terms of punishment. Atikon after the Yerida. But it has to be done in order to bring to fruition Hashem's intention of bringing peace to this world. And, and look at footnote 55. We'll just do the very first paragraph. And that's really the main, the, the, the ultimate, the inner reason for why we went to Golos not for punishment, but in order to transform the darkness of the Golas itself. The Yishleimar, the Rebbe says, and we might say that this is the novelty, this is what the Pasuk that says, V'rav shalom b'nayach, that what does it mean, V'rav shalom b'nayach, what is added on the words, La'asay shalom ba'elam stam, because shalom stam, who are beer da'elam, because when it says La'asay shalom ba'elam, you're talking about refining the world, which means only to refine the veneer of the world, the facade, Lashon Helam, the Rav Shalom, who habir degolos, shehuga The world only shrouds Kedusha. Golos opposes Kedusha. The Rav Shalom, we have to not only refine the facade that seeks to obscure Kedusha, but we actually have to wrestle with the Golos that opposes Kedusha. Yud. And this is why Yaakov lowered himself before lamata, Not just in the mystical sense that he lowered himself before the Sherish of Esav because that Sherish is higher than him, but in a very real sense, lamata, even though really the truth is that Esav should have been bowing to him. But but to bring about the complete refinement of Esav is kasher Esav mitzad the only way to bring about the ultimate refinement is not by knocking Asaph out of the game, but by transforming Asaph to the point where he himself acknowledges that yes, Yaakov is the one that he should be subjugated to. And in order to effectuate this, it would not have been enough for Yaakov to just shine his untrammeled light at Esav. But he had to clothe himself in the, in the, in the vestments of that which had to be refined. And so this does include a descent on the part of the one who's doing the refining. So much so that, that there is some fault, that there is some deficit, that there is something that the Medrash could call a hate. And so this is expressed in our Parsha, in Yaakov lowering himself before Esau. And it's only through this that Yaakov was able to affect 
that Yasef should, should acknowledge. So please look, if you have your Chumash in front of you, um, please look at Pasuk Tes in Perek Lamid, um, I'm getting lost here, Lamid Gimel. So Perek Lamid Gimel, Pasuk Tes. And Esav said to Yaakov, Yesh li rav achi. I have plenty. Let what you have remain yours. And look at Rashi. Rashi says, Here, Esav acknowledged and he conceded that the blessings belong to Yaakov. So the Rebbe says that here, Esav acknowledged that the brachas belong to Yaakov, and included in the brachas is the bracha, that he will be a lord to his brother, meaning that Esau will be subservient to Yaakov. Until we come to the ultimate and revealed refinement of Esau, which will only be the end of time. So please look again in Herod Lamid Gimel, Pasuk Yud Dalit. So you will remember that in Pasuk Yud, 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 Yud Beis, Asaph says, now that we're reconciled, let's travel together. So in Pasuk Yud Gimel, Perak Lamed Gimel, Yaakov says, no, you know, Adaini Yodea, my master knows how you let them rock him. My children are delicate. And the sheep and the cattle, they're nursing, they're young. And if I drive them very hard, they're all going to die. They're too delicate. So therefore, in Pasuk Yodalit, Yaakov says to Esav, Please, my master, go ahead of your servant. And I will go slowly. I will follow you gently. According to the pace of the work that, that I'm dealing with. And according to the pace of the children. Until I come to my master in Seir. So very, very famous question. How could Yaakov, who's the meat of MS, say this untruth to his brother? You wait for me, I'm coming. So Rashi says, Yaakov was never going to walk with him. On the contrary, Yaakov said a great distance because he intended really only to go to Sukkot. He was never going to go to Seir because he thought if he intends to harm me, I'm not going to make it easier for him to harm me. Let him come and find me. So he wasn't going to go to Seir. So how could he say, wait for me, I'm coming. So when will he eventually go? Rashi says, that Yaakov is going to meet Esav in, in Seir, Shenemar, it says, He's going to come to Seir. He's going to come to, 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 to the mountain of Esav. But it's going to be when Mashiach comes. And the Rebbe brings down this Pasuk, Kasher, like it says in Avadia, When Mashiach comes, when Hashem is sovereign over the entire world in open and manifest way, 
then Yaakov will be together with Esau. Um, so, I don't know, to me, this whole idea of being mislabish in the levushim of the mizbara, that we have to vest ourselves in the um, vestments and the constructs of those with whom we're trying to interact ha has always been, I, for me, it's always been a challenge. Like, how far do you go and, and to what extent? And, and um, I think it, 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 it has to always be with limitation on being mislabish only to the extent that it's absolutely necessary and obviously only to the extent that we're allowed to be mislabish in these levoshim. But, but I don't think it's like a, always a simple balance to hit. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that struggles with this, but... Uh... There seems to be much more of an emphasis in Hasidus on turning on the light. Like you don't take away darkness, you get rid of it by turning on light, which would seem that the first method seems to be the method of choice and the method that we should be doing. Yes, you're right that it's always about turning on the light and not, and not, and not beating the darkness back with, with brooms. But the Rebbe is saying, but there's even a deeper thing than turning on the light. The other option is not to beat it down with brooms. The other option is to, is to somehow go down and dirty. I mean, maybe one easy answer to like, how far do you go? Is that it, when you stop knowing that you're going down and dirty, then for sure you've gone too far. That, that's for sure. But when it's still, when it, when it, when it begins to feel comfortable and, and, and you're doing it because, you know, it feels comfortable and enjoy and, and, and it's enjoyable, then for sure it's not for the purpose that you're mislabish in the levushim of the misbara because you, you want to transform it. But you understand, it's not, it's not that you're, doing it to beat it down your your look it's like um this whole thing of of like bending down and talking to a child and looking into their eyes because it's more effective because you're, you're you're lowering yourself to their level there's something very effective about that so I don't know, it could be, it could be getting into conversations about things that maybe are really not that important to you, but that's what your students are excited about now, or that's what everybody's talking about. Mm -hmm. And you, and you want to create some common ground. You want to be relatable. You want to, you want to look in their eyes as it were. Yeah. But, but it's always a very delicate balance. Yeah. 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 If no one else is going to say something, then I just want to, we shouldn't get off before, again, we ask Hashem for a full shalema, totally above Heva, for Henya, Bas, Bracha, Debar, 
and for all of her children and for her husband and her family to be strengthened at this time. And the Ebsha should have Rahmanis and his children and bring the Gaula Shlema right now. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Esther? Somebody? Amen. Should be a goal already. It's the month of Gola. It should be a true Gola for everybody. Personal Amen. lives and the whole Klaus Yisrael. Amen. Now, Mamish. Cold of everybody. Wonderful, wonderful week. And uh, a lot of Hatzlach and balancing this uh, his lapsus. <laughs> <laughs>